You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, new research has unearthed data hidden for 40 years on magnetic tapes. It casts light on the link between consumption of unsaturated fatty acids and mortality in people who had experienced a previous cardiovascular event. So I have pictures of you digging through a lot of musty old boxes and pulling out tapes. Uh, is that what it was like? Well, so we actually were very fortunate that Boonsang, uh, Lilar Thapen, you know, did the digging for us. <laughs> More on that later. But first, this week saw the publication of the Francis Report. Triggered by deaths at a hospital in England, Robert Francis QC was appointed by the government to look at why the quality of care in some wards was so low and what can be done to make sure this doesn't happen in other hospitals. Rebecca Coombs, the BMJ's magazine editor, quizzed him about what doctors can do to help. What I want to ask you is what lessons should doctors and their professional bodies yes. draw from your report? Obviously, in your report you talk about professional disengagement of mm. doctors and how they kept their head down. Um, you know, How can consultants be put at the forefront of the change that you're recommending today? Well, I, I, I think that, um, first and foremost, if we're talking about consultants, and they've got to take responsibility for the welfare of their patient. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've noticed is that um, so rarely do you see when you go around a hospital the name of the consultants above a bed anymore. Now, I know that some people are going to say this is old-fashioned and you need teamwork and so on. Of course you do, but someone must be in charge of the responsible medically at any given time for the patient, and that would usually be a consultant. Mm -hmm. And that, that individual has a personal professional responsibility for the welfare of the patient, not just their liver or their appendix or appendicitis or whatever. And if such a consultant turns up and sees the, the care being provided to this patient is unsatisfactory, then they've got to do something about it. Now, of course, I suspect that many consultants do that, but it is a regrettable fact that consult some consultants, at least at um, Stafford, cannot have been doing that because otherwise these things would have been spotted and stopped. So that's the first point. The second point, I, I think, where it's absolutely essential is that all uh, leaders of the medical profession, which includes all the consultants, take personal and collective responsibility for devising methods to measure the effectiveness of what they do. Now, that will be different in every single specialty and it will sometimes involve individual performance, certain types of surgery. In other cases, it will be about teamwork. But we do need better measures of, uh, uh, of performance than we currently have, which are not often about mortality, sometimes about morbidity, but usually mortality. Mm -hmm. and, and we're often met with the, the reaction, it's too difficult in what I do, whatever my specialty is. It should not be too difficult. Mm -hmm. allowed to be too difficult for any professional uh, to, uh, be res to, to measure what they're personally doing, to measure what their team is doing, and be able to have that compared with other people. And, and, and it is useful for their own practice, and it's got to be useful for their own practice. It should be useful for their team practice. Mm -hmm. It should be useful for the hospital that they work in, and it should be useful for the public and the regulator to enable uh, comparisons to be made. So I see a world in which, and, and there is some movement towards this, where we know when I get, we enter hospital that we're going into be looked after by a team in relation to a particular thing. Their performance in relation to that is 
whatever it is compared with other people. Yeah. And and um, th this needs to be specific to specialties, and it needs to be specific to activities, services, uh, at the very least. And in many cases, if it can be, it should be specific to. Um, I think maybe uh, to, to personally to consultants where that is relevant and it won't always be relevant. But so, uh, you know, the, the model that I've looked at in the report um, and is well known is the Society of Cardiac Thoracic Surgeons and their work and doctors, yes. Sir Bruce Keogh's work. And I think he'd be the first to accept there's more to do there. But that's the sort of thing I have in mind that we need to see in, across the across the. The, the piece really. Sure. Only a handful of health professionals, I think a nurse and, and uh, a couple of doctors, were able to blow the whistle on what was happening at Miss Daffs, and, and yeah. only a few of those raised it beyond the hospital yeah. um, boundaries. Um, I mean, banning gagging clauses, as you've recommended today, is an important step towards outlawing mm. the kind of climate of fear and bullying. But what more can be done? Well, you're, you're absolutely right to say there were very, uh, very, very few, and uh, there were some who raised their heads in the sense of expressing a concern at a consultant's meeting, getting rebuffed, and then doing no more, and that's equally unacceptable. Um, I, I, what I'm seeking to, to do through my structure of minimum standards, allied with the duties of candour and openness, inter interlinked with some will be unwelcome to some, but are necessary, criminal, potentially criminal sanctions, Yes, is, is to make it actually much easier for people to raise their concerns than it is for them not to. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so there, for instance, will be a criminal sanction for willfully obstructing the conveying of concerns. So it becomes easier then for someone to, to do it. We, uh, we need to support people in a much better way who actually raise concerns. And, and actually, some, someone else said to me, you, you've not made any recommendations about whistleblowers, if you're changing the legislation about them. I think it's probably, you know, it takes a long time for people to read the report. A lot of what I'm saying is about including whistleblowers, mm -hmm. but actually making everyone, a, leave the word whistleblower out of it. I'm talking about making the staff prime source of information about what needs to change and then providing in the methods of making that change. And uh, I, I, at the moment I think it's far too difficult for any member of staff, because of the culture, uh, to raise concerns. There, there are fears uh, and uh, as to what the consequences are. But I think if we can, we need leadership, I'm sorry, we need leadership uh, which welcomes this and through its own example makes it clear that we they welcome hearing about the bad as well as the good. So part of yeah. this culture is about boards producing balanced information about what they do so that they give as much uh, prominence to the failings and what they're concerned about and what they're going to do about as they do about uh, successes. And I think some boards are beginning to do that with their quality accounts because it needs to be much more widespread and much more consistent. And thank you. The report recommends that causing death or harm to a patient should yes. be a criminal offence. Well, I mean, by, by a breach of these well, fundamental standards, and I hasten to add that, that this is this is about the sort of things we all think are completely intolerable if they happen in, in a hospital. And I've deliberately really not provided that list because it's got to come out of what a consensus really between patients and the professions about what those things are uh, and, and rather than me or indeed the government just prescribing as a start what they are so 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 we, we start so we, we start from that 
and if we have those standards, which everyone agrees are intolerable if they happen, and if death or serious harm is caused by a breach of that, and it wasn't reasonably practical to avoid it, then criminal sanctions should be available. I would hope that this can all be instituted in a way that makes it um, much more palatable, if I put it in, that's the wrong word, but yes. I may want to change that word, much more palatable for someone who has made a mistake, which may have led to that, to tell someone about it, uh, than not to. In other words, um, it, it might, might well be, well firstly, if they've told the organisation in advance about concerns, which had they been addressed, would prevent what has happened, that could well be a defence. Yes. So we can shift the responsibility to those who can do something about it and make that um, clear. So, so I appreciate it's a complicated picture, but mm -hmm. what's had been tried before hasn't really worked. So, so, but I'm trying to make, on the one hand, real incentives to, to, uh, to, to raise concerns and be honest if things have gone wrong, but at the same, same time, uh, having teeth there so that when serious harm has been done, there are consequences. What's your opinion of the GMC and the NMC and their ability to hold practitioners accountable for poor care? Because, I mean, obviously David Cameron pointed out today that not a single doctor or nurse caught up in this inquiry has been yeah. struck well, off or displayed. What I've commented on in the, in the report is the, the fact that the, both organisations have in the past relied not exclusively but very largely on receiving complaints about identifiable professionals that who they then hauled in front of them after investigating do something about or not as the case may be. Yes. There were complaints about how long that process takes in itself, uh, which um, one listens to and it could be addressed, needs to be addressed. But what the most important thing perhaps there is that sometimes I think that the fact of that process being in place has been used as a reason by employers for not taking other action to protect patients. And that needs to change. Uh, but most importantly, uh, I don't think either organisation has been sufficiently proactive in addressing evidence apparent to it, which would be apparent to it, that there is something going wrong with the system in a particular hospital, which if it is happening must mean that there are professionals accountable for that. Mm -hmm. So they need to have a, an ability to go out there and be proactive to there's a problem in this hospital, let's go and find out who's, been, who's responsible for it, rather than waiting for a complaint about a named Stone individual. Yes. And uh, I think um, there was some acceptance from the General Medical Council witnesses that uh, that needed to, needed to be done. And uh, one can see that it requires a different approach to investigations. Thank you. Um, I mean, large areas of the NHS are under considerable financial of pressure course. at the moment. And these, these constraints and top-down targets mm. can adversely affect um, levels of patient uh, care yeah. that the clinicians can deliver. So. Do you think that your report can be implemented under the kind of resource constraints of the Nicholson challenge? Well, I think it must be. And uh, the, what I say about uh, um, uh, uh, efficiencies and matters of that nature is that whenever you are making, or the trust is making changes, say for cost saving, as the staff are trusted, um, you, you need to explain to the public how you're going to do that and not put patients at risk. You also need to be on, have honesty so that if a service, for whatever reason, cannot be provided safely in accord and comply with these fundamental standards, then we don't carry on doing it. Mm -hmm. And that requires 
honesty, and it requires, I, I know, courage on the part of those who run these, these systems. But I think the medical and nursing professions have a big part to play in that by exercising their existing responsibility to protect patients. And uh, we perhaps need to listen less frequently uh, the argument, well, if you're saying that, it's because you're not doing your job properly. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we need more honesty about what can and can't be done. And frankly, if a service can't be provided, which is incapable of being provided without intolerable suffering of patients, then it's not a service at all, so it shouldn't be being provided. Mm -hmm. So, so that may mean there are hard choices to be made in places and for people, um, but if we're, we're to stop this sort of thing happening again, then we're going to have to make those hard choices. Mm. Great, okay, thanks. GPs. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, we're, we're moving to a new system yeah. of commissioning in April. Uh, GPs obviously weren't in the loop, didn't know what was going on at Mistas, continued to send their patients there. Uh, I'm afraid it's worse than that. They, 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 the evidence suggests, as in the report, that um, they, with the exception of a beef about cl clinical letters, which I happen to know is commonly throughout that, that the system, there were no complaints raised about Stafford of any substance at all until the Healthcare Commission announced it was undertaking an investigation. The clinical commissioning, I'm going to get the word wrong, consortium, that's right, the consortium, the two of them were then asked by the PCT, did they have any concerns? And both of them immediately within days came out with a letter, letters full of concerns. Right. So uh, it wasn't that they didn't have concerns, they hadn't actually put, thought about it and put, it, put them together with each other. Mm. And uh, it's absolutely vital, and that is a reason why they can't do it, that, that general practitioners remember that they have their responsibility to their patients doesn't end when they've referred them to hospital or when they are in hospital. They have a responsibility for their patient afterwards. And through that, they can find out what's going on there. And if they find out there's cause for concern, then the old-fashioned way of just ringing up their friend, the consultants, and having a word is probably no longer any good enough. They have to be more systematic about uh, how they gather information, because after all they are meant, even leaving aside the commissioning, meant to advise patients where the best place to go is for their treatment. Mm -hmm. And uh, though they need to be more systematic about how they assess these things, and I'm sure, uh, and that's a vital part of commissioning, and, and, and one of the things uh, I've been trying to do is to recommend a separation out of res the regulator's responsibility for these fundamental standards and policing those, and for the commissioners of which general practice will be part. Uh, to, to be commissioning for what I've called enhanced quality standards, which are all about effectiveness, quality, all the things that are over and above that these fundamental, no intolerable things. And they, they, the commissioners, must be responsible for ensuring that they can enforce their enhanced standards, which are in reality are going to have to come from probably from the central, central board generally, but they will be applied in local yes. circumstances. And, and then, um, uh, uh, um, then, then having the powers to intervene, to, to, to assess whether they're being delivered, and if they're not, powers of intervention. Mm -hmm. We also need to have the Care Quality Commission regulating the accuracy of information about those things, so, so that we, we make sure there is honesty and transparency in what commissioners are being told, uh, and indeed the public are being told about those, sta those quality standards. Uh, Although putting it like that sounds hugely complicated, I, I believe that it is 
likely to be more simple and clearer than what we have at the moment in terms of who's responsible for what. Just, just last question. Um, nice is to, to draw up standards, including minimum staffing numbers and a skill mix. Do you um, and the CQC is to police these standards? Do you think that staffing levels are too important to be left to local trust boards? Well, there, there seems to me to be a bit of a lack of evidence-based uh, guidance about what level of staff and skill mix you need for in particular clinical settings because it's all said to be too difficult. Mm. And, and for that reason, I recommended that, that NICE should be engaged amongst its many other duties with producing guidance about this. So that staffing is not in itself one of my um, fundamental standards, but it, you do need guidance on how you produce compliance with those standards through proper staffing. And that will be different in different circumstances. So you need to be able to equip boards and regulators and commissioners with the means of working out whether in any particular circumstance there is sufficient staff or not. And I think that's slightly different from some rather broad thing, which is, oh, you've got to have one in one, you know, a 60-40 skill mix for an old person's ward or whatever. That actual mix, what you need, will change every day, as will the numbers you need, depending on the acuity of the needs of the patients in the ward. So I think there's more work to do about building up guidance. It could be you might eventually end up with something you could turn into a compulsory standard, but I don't think we're there yet. And the many articles about the report can be found on bmj.com. Now, Elizabeth Loder hears about data hidden for 40 years. Hello, everyone. I'm talking today with Dr. Christopher Ramsden. He's a clinical investigator at the National Institutes of Health in the United States and has a research interest in fatty acids and their bioactive metabolites. Thanks for being with us, Chris. Thanks for having me. Your paper, Reporting on Results from the Sydney Diet Heart Study, was just published in the BMJ, and it tested the effects of a particular diet in, I think it was middle-aged men who had heart disease. Can you tell us a bit about how the study was conducted and what your findings were? Yes, uh, the Sydney Diet Heart Study was a randomized controlled trial, dietary intervention trial that was performed in uh, the late 1960s and early 1970s. And uh, at that time, uh, there was a lot of interest in in a class of uh, fatty acids called polyunsaturated fats for their ability to lower blood cholesterol. Uh, And this study was conducted by providing a major source of these polyunsaturated fats, in this case, safflower oil, uh, in place of animal fats and other sources of saturated fats, uh, which was intended to lower blood cholesterol, and by doing so, therefore, reduce the risk of heart disease and and death. Um, In this particular study, patients who had had a recent heart attack or other coronary event were randomized to either uh, continue their their habitual diet or to the intervention group, which was provided with the safflower oil and uh, advised to consume more polyunsaturated fats. How long were they on the diet? The subjects were on the diet for a median of 39 months, so a little bit more than three years, um, but some of them were on the diets for up to seven years. Wow, so quite an extensive intervention in contrast to some very short dietary studies that we see nowadays. Yes, and it was a moderate-sized trial with 458 uh, participants randomized to one of the two diet groups. 
I suspect that many listeners like, like me don't know a lot about the different kinds of polyunsaturated fats. Can you explain the different kinds for us? Yes. So there's two major families. There's the omega-6 polyunsaturated fats and the omega-3 polyunsaturated fats. And even within those families, there are uh, multiple different fatty acids that uh, may have different both metabolic and clinical effects. Uh, and this, the, one of the unique aspects of this trial that, that uh, made us search for the data is they provided safflower oil, which, which is unique because it only, pro, it only provides one of these polyunsaturated fats. That's the omega-6 linoleic acid, which is the most abundant polyunsaturated fat in Western diets and in most but not all vegetable oils. So it really seems worthwhile to know about what the effects of this particular polyunsaturated fatty acid group might be. What did the study find? What were the health outcomes in men who consumed a large amount of these omega-6 acids compared to those who continued to follow their regular diet? So in this group of subjects who had already had a uh, previous uh, coronary event, um, the group that was provided the safflower oil and increased their omega-6 linoleic acid uh, had an in a significantly increased risk of, of death from all causes, as well as death due to coronary heart disease and cardiovascular disease, despite, despite having substantial or significant reduction in blood cholesterol levels. That sounds like a completely unexpected outcome. Is that what the researchers were expecting or hoping to find? I think it was, it was quite unexpected at the time and, and very difficult to explain. Uh, before there was more emphasis on the different uh, types of, of polyunsaturated fats. Um, yes, it was quite unexpected. So what's unusual about this study is that it was actually done about 40 years ago. Can you tell us why these findings are only being published today? Well, uh, way back in 1978, the original team of investigators uh, published the, the trial results, uh, specifically that they did uh, this safflower oil intervention group uh, did have an increased risk of all-cause mortality, so they had increased risk of death compared to the control group, uh, but they did not report the specific cardiovascular uh, endpoints, such as you know coronary heart disease-related deaths or cardiovascular deaths. Um, so it was you know they did they did sort of release the information that there was uh, an adverse outcome, um, but. One of the things to, to take into consideration is most of the dietary guidelines and, and evidence reviews to support such guidelines, um, you know, understandably look to cardiovascular outcomes rather than all-cause mortality as they're in formulating their evidence base. So um, we wanted to actually try and go in there and see if it was possible to recover the uh, cardiovascular events. And the data were not just sitting there in nice, clean spreadsheets waiting for you to analyze them, were they? How, how did you go about locating the data? And tell us about some of the challenges, because it's the backstory to your paper that's really fascinating. Well, we were really fortunate that one of the original study investigators, Boonsing Lilar Thapen, who is a, uh, way back when this, this study was performed, was a research assistant, went on to have a very distinguished career in contacting him, he was eventually able to, to find the original nine-track tape, so the magnetic tape that had the original Sydney Diet Heart Study data set. 
So I have pictures of you digging through a lot of musty old boxes and pulling out tapes. Uh, is that what it was like? Well, so we actually were very fortunate that Boonsang, uh, Lilar Thapen, you know, did the digging for us. <laughs> we, you know, I did mm-hmm. try and contact the other investigators, and unfortunately most of them were deceased. Uh, contacted some of their families, and uh, it was really uh, amazing how willing uh, pretty much everyone we contacted uh, put an effort in and trying to find the tapes for us. At the end of the day, it was Boonsang Lilar Thapen's efforts at uh, uh, digging through whatever you know, he, he was looking through to find the actual original tape. And how did you then get the data off of the tapes? Because that's no longer a modern form of data storage technology. We thought about, you know, institutions like museums, but we eventually found actually two companies that had the equipment that were able to, uh, we could send the tape to and have them extract the data. In the meantime, we identified um, the conversion code by looking through old pamphlets relating to, uh, I guess, user manuals of the uh, computer system that they had. So we were able to identify with the help of, of these companies you know, exactly how the data was stored, uh, which uh, software was used, and then eventually were able to extract the data. Wow, so what a fascinating story. And the data are only 40 years old. Do you think there are a lot of other unpublished studies like this out there or partially published studies? Impossible to know for sure, but I I suspect that they're uh, likely to be. Right. It may be especially interesting to find data or missing data or partially published data from from trials that had sort of paradoxical or unexpected findings Uh, in the light of new science, uh, new scientific advances They may make more sense and, and sort of provide some insights. Yes, and I imagine at the time scientists thought that storing the data on the nine-track tapes uh, might have been a a good way to preserve it for posterity, but as it turns out, technology uh, continues on, and that form is uh, obsolete now, and it's actually difficult to extract the data. I know people have been worrying or having uh, theoretical concerns about um, problems just like this as certain new technologies leapfrog others, but this is a good example of a case where that actually happened, that data that were collected not all that long ago, just four decades ago, are actually remarkably hard to access. So it, I think, reminds us all about data storage problems being important and possibly serious. That's that's a good point. In this case, it's great that they recorded it on something that was able to stand the test of time. And, you know, if anyone needs, anyone listening to this has an old tape and they're interested in it, I could direct them to uh, some individuals who are who are excellent at, at doing so. Uh, that's useful to know. You're blazing several kinds of trails. Now, one of the interesting things about this study is that the findings call into question some of the current thinking about dietary fats, um, some of the advice and guidelines by groups, for example, like the American Heart Association. And it seems that the evidence is actually quite finely balanced on this, um, not as definitive as people might think. Can you say more about this? You know, most of the dietary guidelines for the last 50 years or so have have recommended increasing polyunsaturated fats in general in place of saturated fats as a mechanism for lowering blood cholesterol. And I I do think that in this analysis, both of the, the Sydney Diet Heart Study, where in this case, you know, increasing omega-6 linoleic acid um, 
substantially, you know, really up to 15% of calories, so about twice as much as the average American consumes in place of saturated fats uh, had unfavorable effects. And I think that I'm sure will be taken into consideration when people are looking at uh, updating dietary guidelines or whether or not to update them. Um, I, you know, I'd, an interesting piece of this is that in the meta-analysis that we updated to accompany this, the uh, you know, four randomized controlled trials that increased omega-3s alongside omega-6s actually had a significant reduction in uh, cardiovascular disease. So uh, I think it might be a more of a nuanced uh, approach, and I think it's probably very important to look at the, the actual composition of the polyunsaturates rather than just uh, grouping them all together into uh, polyunsaturated fats in general. Yes, and I think one of the nice things about your paper, too, was that you did show how the addition of this new information from the newly analyzed data from the Sydney Diet Heart Study affect the overall balance of evidence about particular types of polyunsaturated fats. So that's very useful. You put it in the context of other available information. Now, I think one of the reasons you submitted this paper to the BMJ is that we've had a longstanding interest in the problems of unpublished clinical trial evidence. And um, I wonder if you have anything to say about that. Do you think that this is more of a problem in the realm of dietary studies than it is with pharmaceutical products or devices, or do you see this as um, a very similar thing in the dietary field? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a great theme, and I'm really glad you guys are pursuing it. Uh, it's it's what led me to uh, to look into the BMJ for a place to to uh, to publish these results. Um, I'm not I, I really don't know. I, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, I assume mm -hmm. that there are some some missing data in the dietary uh, intervention trials or other dietary uh, maybe some observational trials, uh, but I really don't know for sure. Thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate this look behind the scenes, and we applaud you for your efforts in digging out and publicizing these fascinating data from this old study. All right. Thanks very much. And that research paper is available on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with a roundtable on the future of primary care. Join us then. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.